Our next guest will be up in a second. The hired man starts suddenly enough uh, with an English woman doing what, um, what the English tend to do, which is that, you know, we've, we're not colonizing anymore. We're buying second homes. This woman isn't rushing the stage. It's Amanata Forna. <laughs> Don't worry. It's fine. Amanata Forna, up you come. Come on. I'll keep talking about you while you arrive. Um, so, so Laura buys uh, this house in, in Croatia. Seems like a bit of a bargain, lovely house. She sets about um, doing it up with the help of the hired man, um, Duro. But what happened um, in this house? What happened in this village? Why is there so much silence? What are the secrets that everybody um, is hiding? Um, there's a lot in this book about how normal life can really very quickly descend um, into kind of neighborly, almost banal, terror um, and there's also a lot about the enduring power of love um, particularly in the last few pages and handily she happens to have won a Wyndham Campbell prize <coughs> what do you know <laughs> drinks are on Amanata anyway there you go. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna read a little bit from it it's a book it is about many things um, how quickly people descend into uh, a state of war it's about silence <laughs> It's about, I think, more than anything else, because, of course, this family who buy the house in Croatia don't know what has happened there in, that, in their particular village. And to me, it was really about the elephant in the room that no one's talking about. And the fact that sometimes there's an elephant in the room and some people know it's there and other people don't know it's there. Um, it's all that knowing and not knowing. So, uh, of course, you know, my inspiration was Sierra Leone, where half my family come from. And I'd written reasonably extensively about that civil war. And I wanted to go to a country where I couldn't read the country the way I could read Sierra Leone. You know, I knew pretty much in Sierra Leone who had done what, where not to go, whose eye not to meet. Um, but I was interested in going to another place and seeing what the aftermath of war was like there. And actually, I was drawn to Croatia for a couple of reasons. One, because I had friends from there, and we had had long chats about our wars. Uh, but the other reason was that I found an advert in the back of a newspaper for bargain homes, holiday homes in Croatia. And I thought, wow, you know, anyone who's over a certain age, at the, you know, and that's the kind of person who could afford a holiday home, um, to go to a place where the symbol, the emblem of that war was the empty house and snap up cheap property. I thought that was pretty chilling. You would, I would, wish to know the provenance of my house very, very, very well. So anyway, this is uh, The Hard Man. Page one. September 2007. At the time of writing, I'm 46 years old. My name is Duro Kolak. Laura came to Gost in the last week of July. I was the first to see her the morning she drove into town. From the hillside, you have a view of the road, one of the three that leads into town. The first comes direct from the north, the second and third from the southeast and southwest, respectively. The car was on the road that comes from the southwest, from the coast. An early sun had burned off mist, most of the mist, and on a day like this, the deer might be encouraged to leave the woods and come down the hill. So I turned back to fetch my rifle, even though it was not the season to hunt. I'd chosen my spot and laid out my breakfast. On the branch of a tree, 
a collared dove rested out of view of the falcon soaring above. I trailed the bird lazily through my rifle sights, and that was when I noticed the car. A large, newish four-wheel drive being driven very slowly down an entirely empty road as though the driver was searching for a concealed entrance. I lowered the gun so that I had the vehicle fully in my sights, but the angle and reflection of the sun made it impossible to see who was driving. An hour later, I was on the road home carrying my gun and an empty bag. Instead of cutting through the long field, I kept to the road until I reached the blue house. A row of trees grew on the verge in front. Over the years I'd watched three of them reach and exceed the height of the roof. The fourth had died some years back. Nobody to cut it down, and so it remained standing next to its living companions, branches like bleached bones. The overhang of the roof cast a deep shadow on the walls of the house. Stains flowed from the windowsills down the whitewash. Budlier sprouted from a high gutter, a slow slip into decay. Nobody had a reason to go there, not even children for whom there was no shortage of empty houses to play in, and anyway, this one was too far beyond the boundaries of the town. The door of the house rested upon its hinges. The shutters were pushed back and one of the windows, glass darkened with dirt and crossed with silvery strands, stood open. Parked up with two wheels on the grass was the car I'd seen earlier in the morning. From inside, voices. One, a girl's, young, high, hesitant. The other was older. They spoke in English. From what I understood, it had been a long time since I'd heard English. They were talking about something they'd lost. I was listening to a mother and a daughter. The daughter said she'd go and look in the car. I slipped out of sight around the side of the building where the old ladder hung. I waited, leaning against the wall, and listened to her footsteps, the heft of the car door. Only then did I realise I wasn't alone. A boy of 16 or 17 was standing at the corner of the building. He wore a check shirt, jeans, black and white baseball shoes, and stood with his eyes closed and his face tilted up to the sun. He had his hands cupped over his ears as, as he listened to music through his headphones, lost to the sound and unaware of me. I retreated softly to the road. And then I'll read a little bit from Gost's past. <coughs> so we now go back 16 years. Some people start to leave Gost. Others return. Yavor's mother makes the journey north to have her operation. Yavor puts her on the bus, which is packed with people. The family who owned the baker's shop up sticks and are gone. The shop is closed, the hatch through which they used to sell devrek and meat pies is sealed. Yesterday's bread still sits on the shelves at the back. <coughs> Soon it is no longer yesterday's bread, but three-day-old bread, last week's bread. There's no explanation, no note on the door, just an old notice in faded black tip stuck to the door which asks customers to make their orders for the next day by 10 o'clock. Somebody crosses out the word chleb, and writes, crew. Both of the words mean bread, but some people use one and some the other. The ones who start leaving are the chlebs. So now there is only one baker's shop in town. This inconvenience is everybody, and yet it's also the way we want it. 
In the closed shop, the bread behind the counter turns blue. I know the family, everyone does. The two daughters, the Mongol the boys at school used to follow and grunt at, and the slutty one in the Angora sweater. I'd often been to their house. My father and theirs were always lending and borrowing things. Also, the father used to supervise karate practice at the sports club, which I went to for a short while because my father thought it would do me good. In their front room, they had a round rug, deep red colours with a Persian-style pattern. I remember it well because I used to sit and stare at my feet and the pattern, embarrassed by the presence of the Mongol while the red-haired mother offered me day-old pastries from the shop and the father went to search for whatever he was returning or giving. So, when I see a man and a woman, who I also know, walking down the road with the very same rug on their shoulders, I know exactly from where it has come. The man strides forward and nods briskly at me but doesn't speak and looks at me right in the eye for a beat longer than anyone would normally. Behind him, the woman, his wife, who is still wearing her slippers, the other kind with the little heel, totters under the weight of the thing. She gives me a sheepish grin, lowers her head and scuttles on. The husband's boldness stays with me for a long time. A pair of middle-aged thieves, challenging me to challenge them. The door of the family's house stands open. A downstairs window has been broken, the television has gone already, and of course the rug. Over the weeks that followed, the remainder of the family's belongings disappear into the homes of neighbours and former friends. I recognise their curtains hanging in the window of the deputy karate coach's house two streets away. Somebody drags a mattress from one of the upper floors, gives up and abandons it in the doorway. Someone else sets fire to it. A sticky little turd appears upon the scorched ticking. Stray cats move in and take over from, from the family's pet. The Toms make mincemeat of him. Um, I, I could only read certain parts of this book in, in short sittings, and, and I read a lot of it. Um, with one hand over the bottom bit of the page so that I couldn't see what was, what was going to happen next. I really struggled with parts of it. It's very scary. Um, what's scary about it is the kind of banality. You never use the words ethnic cleansing. You never use the words Serbs and Croats. You talk about the bread, the chleb and the, and the crew. And that is what I think is so scary about it. Um, was, that, was that always going to be your, your approach, that kind of domestic way in? Yeah, I, de I deliberately stripped out the macro politics of it. Um, a, a friend of mine who's a war correspondent said to me, um, actually after I'd written this book, but um, it's pertinent, he said, war is just armed robbery, right? You know, whatever flag you fly under, it's armed robbery. You want what somebody else has. And this, to me, was very evident. Certainly in the war in Sierra Leone, there were, that there were reasons for that war. There are, obviously are reasons for war. There were very dispossessed people who didn't have enough. But the other thing that happened in that war were lots of little, um, you know, vengeances, rivalries. Which war are you talking about? The, the war in Sierra Leone uh, yeah. were played out. And these two wars were contemporaneous, you see. So... 
you know, the one in Yugoslavia was going on while, you know, we were having, we were fighting in Sierra Leone. So I was really kind of watching them both play out. And I was really astonished at the difference of the reporting that actually what happened was the war in Sierra Leone, and I'm so glad you were scared because I just think be afraid. Right? Yeah. Be very afraid. You know, the war in Sierra Leone, the way the reporting was done was, here are mad Africans killing each other. The way the war in, in the former Yugoslavia was reported, here are all the nationalist, ethnic, uh, uh, here's, here's the macro politics, here's what's going on, here are the leaders, here's this. You know, all of the factions were described, I mean, it got a bit confusing, didn't mm. it, with the Bosnian Serbs and the... But uh, it was explained. And I thought it was quite... That difference was quite extraordinary. And so, of course, I wrote... The, the Sierra Leone novels and memoir in order to fill that gap. But I also wrote the Croatian one actually to say, you know what, th there wasn't that much difference. There was hardly any difference between these two wars. There's not that big a difference between mm. uh, one war and another. You can put different labels on it, but essentially in a civil war, one group of people want to kill their neighbours. Uh, one, the, one of the characters towards the beginning of this novel, um, uh, and somewhere in the middle of the novel, um, turns to her daughter who started to kind of wonder, you know, why is one of the churches closed? Why is one of the, you know, the, the bakery closed? And, 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 and turns and says, good heavens, this isn't Africa. Yes, that was my little trick. Our wars are so, you know, we, we sh you know we're snipers yes, rather than exactly, machetes. Which is just, exactly. you know, oh, and so actually, much cleaner. I mean, the other thing that... So the, the, the friend he said about uh, civil war being armed robbery, but he said, I mean, war being armed robbery, which actually was a conversation we had only about two weeks ago, but did say something that changed the whole course of the book, which was about... Because I, I couldn't understand... You see, Sterling Leone took 30 years to go to war. And I, couldn't, I kept thinking, well, hang on a minute, why are we being called savages? You know, it took us that long. We were that peace-loving. It took us that long. And anyway, he was, he'd reported from uh, the former Yugoslavia, and he helped me quite a lot with the research. And he, in passing, one day said, well, the reason that war kicked off so fast was because every man was a hunter. They were uh, hunting uh, nations, and every man was a hunter, every man had a gun, and every man knew how to use it. And then I thought, oh, this is why it was a sniper's war. Right? That's why it was a sniper's war. And if you looked at the war in Sierra Leone, what was it? It was about hacking off limbs. What did, what did farmers have? They have scythes. Everyone picks up the thing they have to fight. So, um, I mean, actually, when you, when, when you talk about how Westerners fight wars, it's not snipers, it's drones. So you really don't get your hands dirty. Um, but that, was a, you know, that, to me, was the big difference between how the war in Sierra Leone and the war in the former Yugoslavia was fought on the ground. And that changed, really, everything about Duro, actually. He became a hunter. And an observer. He spends a lot mm. of time looking through that telescope. Mm. He's high up and he, he sees a lot and he doesn't miss very much at all. You learned how to shoot for that. What, how did that feel and when you were learning how to did. shoot? Well... I mean, how, what did you, did you go to, did you wear like I mean, in headphones? That, I think, and, I think you know, in that two cell thing, I would absolutely have been a two cell. I would definitely have reached for the bow and arrow, not the basket weaving. Um, I mean, who wouldn't actually? But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I, I decided that in order to create this character, I would learn to shoot. I also had a deep desire to shoot, actually. Where did that I really come wanted from? to. It, it was it's incredibly hard. What did hard you want to shoot? To did you want to shoot, shoot watermelons what it was like? or people? Oh, or? well, <laughs> the odd irritant. <laughs> no, um, um, I just wanted to know what it was like, really. I, 
I didn't have a sort of major fascination with it, but I had enough to feel like I wanted to try this out. So was it a handgun or a rifle? High-velocity rifle. I, it's very hard to get She said that with such excitement. <laughs> very hard, it's very rifle. hard to get someone to teach you to shoot in this country, as you know, because we've got so many restrictions. Foolishly, I'd left America, where this could have been done very quickly. <laughs> Come to Britain, try to, you know, try to find someone to teach me. In the end, I found a former police marksman. Sorry, can and you turn that phone off, please? You he criminal lady will snipe you. <laughs> <laughs> poor, poor um, poor I, I found a, a former police marksman, and, and he taught me to shoot. And the first thing he did was hand me the weapon that my character... I told him exactly what I was doing, and they wanted me to do a whole kind of course and stuff, and I said, Look, I just want to shoot guns. <laughs> so he handed me this weapon, and he said, well, you know, I heard what you said, and this is what he would shoot. And the first time I pulled the trigger, the thing blew me off my feet. <laughs> I mean, it absolutely blew me off my feet. By the time he had finished coaching me, and he was a very good teacher, I could hit a bullseye at one kilometre. Really? Oh it was God. quite a big bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're a kilometre away, it looks really tiny. It's actually quite big. How but did that change, though, your understanding the of the character? character? So everything I learned about shooting... Um, you cannot be a histrionic, right? You have to be a very, very, very calm person. And so I, and you have to be willing to wait for very long periods of time. And so I, I thought that about Dura. Here is somebody who can wait. He's going to end up waiting 16 years, right? Here is somebody who can watch. Here is somebody who can keep his mouth shut. Here is somebody who can stay really calm under pressure. Uh, the one, one of the things my... Uh, instructor told me when I was learning, he talked about the um, American Olympic team, the marksmen, and he said that they had brought in one of these coaches, and you know there are these guys who they can come in, or women, and they can come in and they can basically, they don't have to be able to do the thing you do, they can just watch you and figure out how you do it and when you get your best results, what it is you do. Mm. So he watches the American um, uh, uh, Olympic team, and he figures out many, many, many things, but the thing he figures out, which is so extraordinary, he discovers that when all the best shots take their best shots, they pull the trigger between heartbeats. And they didn't even know they were doing it. They actually go... And they've got very, very, very slow heartbeats as well. These guys all 42 beats. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that took me an awful lot about what Dura was like. D is Gost a real place? Because I, I couldn't find it on a map. I'm not very good at maps, admittedly. No, but I laid in a trail of clues. As to where it was. Where it was. It's a fictionalised version of a place that actually exists. And most people... And did you go there? Yeah, I did. And most people from uh, that part of the world do know where it is because there's a great big clue. Um, but... Uh, it, 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 uh, I, I mean, I, I wanted to create a fictional town, yeah. not get absolutely laid down in sure. exactly what had happened in that place. Um, but it is a place where certain atrocities uh, occurred in um, Croatia. You, you went on holiday to Yugoslavia as a child, didn't you? Mm. Was it, w w do you have any memory of that when you, when you went back there? Was it, you know, was it similar? Was it different? Yeah, was I have a good memory of it. I mean, obviously, you know, kids are looking at different things. I have a very strong memory of the flavours of ice cream. Mm. Uh, but... Uh, I'd gone there on, on my on my mother and stepfather's um, honeymoon, 
uh, they'd gone off somewhere else and they took us all to, to the former Yugoslavia. And I, we went to uh, Dubrovnik. And I do, I do remember the feel of the place. And the, I remember very, very clearly the colour of the sea. Mm. And I did steal a couple of memories from that time in, the, in what was then Yugoslavia and put them mm. in the book. It was the first time... There was a, there's a boat... Well, at one point, Dura's a boat boy, mm. isn't he? And we... Um, when, we, when, when, I, when I was there with my parents, we had gone out on a boat and there was a boat boy and it was kind of the first time I ever thought there was anything great about men, actually. Mm. <laughs> I was only four years old or five years old, early to start, but anyway. <laughs> and um, I remember that I was on the shore and my parents were in the boat and everybody was in the boat apart from me and my sister. And... They were saying, everybody in the boat was saying, swim, swim, swim. And it was just miles. It was far too far for me to swim. I don't know what they thinking. But anyway, and uh, I didn't have my rubber ring, and I only had my water wings. And you know how water wings just put you in the water? They just drown you, don't they? they... Yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave. I wouldn't get off the beach without my rubber ring. And the boy in the boat picked up my rubber ring and did a sort of swallow dive into the water and brought me my rubber ring. So, and actually, I kind of used a lot of that to me. Duro has this whole period where he's on the boats and things like that. So these things all come back and find their place, um, don't they? There, there aren't that many, you know, in terms of, you know, Patrick's story is based on, you know, somewhat on real, real people or inspired by real people. Um, you have the dog on, on the jacket here and there are two dogs in the book, Duro's two dogs. Um, Duro's... Better with animals than people, it uh, has to be said, particularly with these two dogs. And I was surprised, well, not that surprised, actually, because it's such an affectionate portrayal. One of them is kind of a dog that you'd had. Yes, I'm always being asked, I mean, aren't we always, do you yeah. base people on, you know, your characters on real people? Which I, I sort of, you do and you don't. I mean, they're not, you know, you, you take what you know of people um, to make a character, but do I actually take a person and transpose them onto the page? No, I don't. But I have sometimes said, well, I've never done it with a human, but I have done it with a dog. And Cars, Duro's dog, who is a blind dog and his hunting dog, is absolutely my dog. She's, I had a lurcher, well, I've had several lurchers, but she was the first. She was the best. And she went blind uh, in her later life. And so I used all of that for, um, for Cars. I cried a lot for cause in the book. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take a couple of questions now. Questions over here. Sophia, there you go. Imagine that. Hi. Um, you very much reminds me of the writing of Breakback. I'm very pleased with that. Yes, Annie, Annie Prue, thank you. Has, you know, because you worked for the BBC for a very long time um, and were a journalist other than for the BBC, um, did that influence your writing? Did it help it make it kind of compact? I know how to... Yeah, my sentence is very short because I was a broadcast journalist and uh, I, learnt, I always had to write for The Voice. So you keep your sentence really short because otherwise you, you know, you'll faint during the sub, trying to get through the sub-clauses. Um, so I've always, that, that's been a big part of it and being able, I think, therefore, to find the transition to writing and voice, even if it's not your voice, is possible. Yeah, and a certain economy. I mean, I was very, very happy to leave the short form behind and go mm. to the long form. So, you know, it's probably not entirely, the influence is not entirely direct, but I certainly 
Um, I, I can be a pretty brutal editor of my own work as well. I can go through it with a red pen and really get yeah. rid of stuff. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you, you know, your first long-form book was this incredible memoir, The Devil That Danced on, on the Water, um, which I've added to my reading list for my, my memoir class that I teach. It's, I mean, it's just I- incredible. And so much of the themes that come up in there also come up in your novel. It's obviously ways, ways for you to address it. But, you know, did, did you have to do the memoir first before you got to the novel? Or did you think, oh, I'd like to write a novel and, you know, then, then couldn't? I don't know. Well, I don't think I... I wasn't sitting around thinking I want to be a novelist, actually. I tend to think of a book I want to write, and I wanted to write that book. I've sometimes tried to reverse the thinking and think, if I hadn't written The Devil, The Dance on the Water, would I have been able to... Would I have been able to write a novel set somewhere entirely different, you know, about completely different things and themes? Mm. What Probably do you mean in not, really. Right. I, you know, I, I think there are the ideas... It doesn't mean to say that everybody who's had a sort of major life event has to write about that life event, but... You know, there was a... All the things that I've ever been interested in the world, uh, you know, those are the things I want to explore. That's not true for the whole rest of my family, who actually don't go back and look at these things and are not terribly interested and, you know, would probably rather play the violin or whatever, you know. But uh, it it always just did interest me. I really was my father's daughter. So uh, I was like that when I was a kid and I stayed like that. So I was probably always going to write that book. One of the things I discovered in the course of this, oh, incidental, yes, is, is that Aminata and I were born in exactly the same hospital in Scotland, we, uh, a wee bit apart. And her dad was an obstetrician, and I was reading it thinking, did her dad deliver me? Weird. Um, but we just <laughs> we, we, we worked out that that didn't happen, and it would have no, been... No, when he says a wee bit apart, it wasn't really that wee. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been so uncomfortable for my mum. I'd have been like, do you remember this? <laughs> uh, um, anyway, Aminata Forner, thank you so much. Thank you. Amazing, amazing. We'll be back in 20 minutes. You can order drinks and snacks over there and you can make reservations for dinner after. 20 minutes. See you then.